we hear the words of the psalmist, of God through the psalmist, reminding us to be still and know that he is God. To be still and know that he is God. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the scriptures that have inspired such imagination and freedom movements and fresh life. Lord, these are the words of God. They hold authority because you, God, are the ultimate authority. And these are the stories and songs, Lord, the doubts and the struggles and accounts and wisdom literature that have been gathered up for our sharpening, for our encouragement, for our admonition. Lord, we thank you for the word today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We uh, are in a series called I Got Nothing. <laughs> Part of this was just a cheeky way of naming our cultural moment and the insecurity that seems to kind of be in the air about what does it mean to be a faithful follower of Jesus? What does it even just mean to be a human? Maybe you're here, you're not a Christian. By the way, welcome. Called Sanctuary Sanctuary for a reason. We want this to be a safe place, sacred place for you to be open. Uh, and so that, um, that confusion, that desire for clarity about what it means to be human, about what it means to live well, about like shifting goalposts on the definition of the good life and freedom and uh, we just wanted to kind of um, look to the scriptures and go, is there any help in a season like this, in a cultural moment like this, for what it means to be the church, what it means to be a family following the path of Jesus together? So we turn to Daniel. We're kind of doing this slight mashup of Daniel and First Peter. Daniel is sort of our baseline, but continuing to use First Peter as a New Testament example of an account of a community that is in exile. You say exile, exile. This is this idea that you are like not in your homeland or home country. And there has been like some shift. We're going to talk about this a little bit more in the sermon today in our world where I think we're feeling that much more the fact that we are in the world and not really of it as followers of Jesus. We left off after going through Daniel 1. If you missed last week, please go back and take a listen to that on the podcast. Um, Daniel and his friends have become these notable wise men in the king's court. So Daniel, though not compromising and risking, um, really saying, I'm not going to kind of fall in line in every way, Nebuchadnezzar, that you want me to fall in line. I, uh, the, the king sees that actually his choices were good and beneficial and appoints Daniel, who he is essentially trying to colonize, culturally co-op, changing his name and his eating patterns and the way he sees the world and giving Daniel an alternative vision of the good life. And Daniel says, okay, I can learn. I can, I can see what you're doing. But ultimately, we read very quickly, Daniel will not compromise. And this actually doesn't cost him anything out of the gate. And as we're going to see in this next section, it's not going to cost him again, though we're getting to the lion's den, guys. <laughs> Daniel 2, in the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar, I'm going to affectionately refer to Nebuchadnezzar as Nebi from this point on, had dreams. 
His mind was troubled, and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, astrologers, some of your translations say diviners, to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king, May the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers. This is normal for a king, for an emperor, to have these sorts of people around him. This was like his wise counsel. And so the king replied to the astrologers, Have you gotten everything that you need from Urban Outfitters? No, it's king. This is what I have firmly decided. Have you guys been to Urban Outfitters lately? My wife's like, no, you're too old to go there. My gosh, it's like there's so much astrology stuff. It's fascinating. Anyway, the king replied to the astrologers, this is what I firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your house is turned into piles of rubble. An overreaction. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Once more, they replied, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will interpret it. Then the king answered, I'm certain that you're trying to gain time because you realize this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is only one penalty for you. You've conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then tell me the dream and I will know that you can interpret it for me. Commentators point out that old Nebi knows that his dream is significant. Have you ever had a dream and it like kind of haunts you, but you don't really remember it? Have you ever woken up and you're like, I had a nightmare and I don't quite remember the details and it lingers over you? Anyone had that experience before? Yeah, a bunch of you. This is actually really normal. I did a little bit of research on dreams and this is a very, very typical thing, constant when you're especially under stress, doing a lot of anxiety, when you're anticipating a potential negative outcome. These sorts of dreams well up, and oftentimes because they come in really hot, you don't often remember them. And so, again, every commentator I could find points out that Nebuchadnezzar, very likely, given the way the language is, didn't remember the dream himself. So we don't know exactly what was troubling the king to cause these bad dreams, but we have a couple clues. Each year in the early part of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar, his force went to the um, like outposts, the outliers, the extremities of the empire to ensure that the land that they conquered paid their taxes. And so uh, in 604, Ashkelon had put up this, this is another empire, had put up this stiff resistance um, and had to be reduced to rubble. In 603, an extra-large army sieged these towers and heavy equipment, and Babylonian troops uh, were in the field for months and months on end. There's a lot of anxiety being a, like, brutal, evil dictator. This is what Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar is. Nebi is trying to hold the kingdom together. And it's incredibly, and we're going to make sense of this when we get to his dream, it is incredibly anxiety-producing. There is this fear that comes up in ancient literature again and again with different kings, including kings in Babylon, that we know that where there's this inadequacy, this troubled spirit uh, Joyce G. Baldwin talks about. He's this famous commentator on Daniel. 
So the king is taking this fear and anxiety out on his council. Have you ever taken fear and anxiety out on your loved one? <laughs> no one wants to raise their hand for that one. Have you ever taken out unbelievable fear and anxiety on the person that you love the most? Have your kids ever become a dumping for your frustration? Never. The astrologers answered the king, verse 10. There is no one on earth you can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods. And they do not live among humans. It's like the gods are the only one and the gods are far off. This made the king so angry and so furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. Man, when you wake up in the wrong the bed and you have that kind of power. Things go south. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death and the men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends. Remember, they just like went out on a limb, asked for a different diet in Daniel 1 and end up getting promoted to this place. Now, these experts in dreams worked on the principle that dreams followed this sort of empirical law. If you had enough data you could interpret the dreams. There's still dream manuals to this day. This was incredibly popular in ancient Babylonian. Um, they would have these massive, massive, like, very difficult to reference, but like systematic ways of interpreting a dream. And so there are only a few kind of experts that could even scour through these books to figure out a possible parable, parallel. But the unreasonable demands of the king is that like no one was ever asking. People were asking for the interpretation of dreams all the time. No one was ever asking for, tell me what my actual dream was. Rightly so, these folks were like, yeah, we can't do that. But the king suspects that these interpreters and enchanters are actually imposters. Stay with me, verse 14. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. Circle wisdom intact if you're taking notes. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. This is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Their Jewish names have been moved to Babylonian names. He urged them. So he gathers his friends up, and he urges them to plead for mercy from God, from the God of heaven, right? Their God, they believe the true God, concerning this mystery, so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. I think that the book of Daniel might be one of the most important books for people in a city in a region like ours. This book helps us make sense of what it is to follow God in very, very compromising, in a very compromising moment. Gabe Lyons recently released this book called Good Faith, where he said that Christianity is now perceived as two things at the same time, irrelevant and or extreme. That the typical person, when they see you, they'll think they're totally extreme, and what they're extreme about is completely irrelevant to my life. Does anybody feel that? This isn't everywhere. Does anyone feel that? 
It's not right. It's not good. It's not true. But I think we feel some of this. We're moving from being seen as strange to, for some of us, being seen almost as a threat to culture. I mentioned this because in many ways, like particularly in a city center like this, I think people are dealing with a low-grade anxiety and fear. People know that if they're public about their faith, HR might come down like a hammer in their environment. People are worried that if it gets out, they could be passed over for jobs or perceived as strange. Forget even talking about your faith, actually embodying that kind of generosity and justice and love and beauty can often be compromising when we connect it to the author, which is what we've talked so much about, what our culture has done. The spirit of the age actually is, echoes the very kingdom that we've come to profess. It's always so funny when people who are like staunchly atheist talk about their visions of justice and mercy and love and the good life. It literally nearly always, unless they're not from the West, looks exactly like the way of Jesus, just stripped of the king. And thus, that way gets perverted and twisted. And so what is our response to all of this? Well, the first reaction so often is fear. It's fear. Like, people respond to all of this and go, look what's happening in our culture. And, I mean, some, some of you have, like, relatives that get really batty. Like, the Antichrist is coming. And, like, all of a sudden, like, people are turning to, you know, saying the same things they've said generation after generation. The end is near and we've got to run for the hills. It's this narrative dominated by fear. We've got to, like, take our nation back for Jesus. I'm sure no one said anything like that recently. <laughs> but I... I don't think this is an appropriate narrative. I think it's a false assumption. It's a false assumption that it's good for followers of Jesus to have this sort of cultural power. But it's a sermon for another day. The second gut reaction is a reaction of self-preservation. How do we like bundle up and get around one another and preserve like the rights we have left? So fear is translated into grasping for power and grasping again for rights. Now, I'm not saying religious rights are unimportant. I think they're fundamental human rights. But if I could think of two narratives that are least compelling in our world, it's fear and self-preservation. This isn't winning anyone to the beauty and life of Jesus because it doesn't look like the beauty and life of Jesus. And these have been, though, many people's gut reaction. Younger folks tend to be, that tends to be more middle-aged and older-aged folks. Younger folks, the reaction has been a little different. Their reaction is compromise and syncretism. Compromise is basically saying, hey, look, the world's a different place now. I don't know about you, but we need to reinterpret the scriptures and God's expectations through the lens of our culture. So we reverse the authority of scripture. Instead of saying, here's what God wor God's word says, we say, here's what our culture says, and we try to fit God's word into it. The only problem is that you remove it from its source of power, which is God himself, you're left with this awkward set of morals that you sort of have to live by but won't actually fully work. It's just good old-fashioned compromise. It's actually kind of funny because you'll like never be able to really enjoy sin in that place, and you'll never be able to really enjoy God in that place. <laughs> you follow me? The solution for that is Repentance. There'll be an opportunity for that right at the end of our time today. But I want to say this last, like, syncretism, which is this idea of, like, just taking all of these, like, snippets of Jesus' talk and boiling it together 
in a sort of like palatable version of Christianity just completely misses the heart of what we're called to be about. So fear, self-preservation, compromise, syncretism. Is there a better way? And this is what Daniel gives us. Daniel is experiencing cultural disorientation. This is what we took a lot of time talking about last week. They went from living in Jerusalem, observing temple worship in the kingdom of God, to being dragged into the courts of old Nebi. There they were educated, basically brainwashed, years in literature and language of the Babylonians. What this cultural narrative was and what their story was couldn't be any more opposed to what Daniel and the children of God were taught. Their identity and their posture, though, in response to all this wasn't fear, it wasn't syncretism, it wasn't compromise, it wasn't control. Their approach was to become a different sort of people. And a phrase that I've grown to love, which is from this rabbi, but has been repeated many times, is this phrase, a creative minority. I want to give a definition to this. A creative minority is a Christian community in a web of stubbornly loyal relationships knotted together in a living network of persons in a complex and challenging cultural setting who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of the world. That's a lot. Let me say it again. A creative minority is a Christian community in a web of stubbornly loyal relationships knotted together in a living network of people that exist in a complex and challenging cultural setting who are committed to being a family following the way of Jesus for the renewal of the world. We are sitting right now in an opportunity. This is what we see in Daniel, his faithfulness to God, and this is the opportunity before us. The tension between faithfulness and the tension between influence. This tension between just being faithful to who God called me to be and loving the people around me well. We have to have a new understanding of our cultural identity. Who we are and whose we are. This is a phrase I'm going to keep repeating. Do we have a strong and firm cultural identity rooted in who we are and whose we are? Syncretism says we're living only for what's presently available and accessible. Separatism says that you withdraw and run away from culture and create a whole little world down in Arkansas somewhere or something. No disrespect to Arkansas. But our call is to live fully present here and now while we live for another kingdom. This is the tension that a creative minority lives and works in. And this is what we see through the book of Daniel. There are these tensions that Daniel has to live with. And what we see in Daniel can actually influence us and help us to influence culture. So what does he do? Daniel, in this odd moment, going back to Daniel 2. First, he accesses this confidence. He's able to walk by faith. We get this strong peek into Daniel's character. In the face of confusion and shock, like, okay, if people don't interpret this crazy guy's dream, this is the culture I came into? Like, we're going to get, like, hacked into pieces? Shock and fear and whatever else he's feeling, we meet a man who is able to stay calm and trust God. We read Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? When confusion arises, when an erratic king demands blood, 
He is able to trust. And let's be honest, our world demands blood in one way or another all the time. Our schedules, they demand blood. They want our kids' time. And it's so encouraging. Some of you have like had to put up such a fight. I'm one of them who've resisted the pull of like athletics that's like demand your attention. I want my kid to be so well-rounded so we spend so much time and energy and gas and our own like time and anxiety as a family getting them to every possible thing except helping them like become people of beauty, generosity, mercy, and grace in the way of Jesus. We'll talk about that at the family retreat. Daniel went into the king and he asked for time so that he might interpret what the dream meant. He's got so much faith. Daniel shows us that we have other options than to fight or freeze, which would have been natural reactions when you find out the king is coming for you. Two, what does he do? He goes to his community. He pulls like the play out of the playbook. That is the only first move. He gathers up his friends and he prays with them. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azra. So he gathers his community together, and then three, he prays and he listens. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. I love this. By the way, right in verse 11, what did we read? He said, what the king asked is too difficult. No one, this is the chief to, the, to Nebuchadnezzar, no one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. It's like for, for Nebuchadnezzar and from every other system of belief out there, the gods are far away. You've got to do a bunch of stuff to earn their favor. Daniel knows the true God is actually not far from any one of us. God's not far. For Daniel, the God is, God is close. And so he prays. And he listens. And then number four, what does he do? This is just such a simple like, rubric for us. When we hit these cultural moments, we stop, we have confidence, we remember whose we are. We go to our community. We seek the Lord with our community and we actually listen and wait on him. And then he what? Jumps into a praise break. He praises and he trusts. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven in verse 20 and said, now, if you're reading uh, in your Bibles right now, you can probably see as you're reading online that this section is indented. It looks like a poem or a song. This is a massive clue for those who are interested in like studying the Bible more, especially in the Old Testament. When you see a text all of a sudden jump into poem form, it's not an afterthought. I used to always read it that way. Like, okay, Daniel's just going to say a bunch of like really flowery liturgy about how much he loves God. Let's get on with the story. Anyone else like that? I would like skip those sections. I discovered that actually commentators point out again and again, no, 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 this is the writer's way of saying this is the main point, and I'm about to tell you what the whole stinking book's about. So we've got to pay attention. Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are Nebuchadnezzar's. No, they're God's. Nebuchadnezzar changes times and seasons. No, he does. God does. He disposes kings and raises up others. <laughs> Matters nothing to the current narrative. He deposes kings. He gives wisdom to the wise, which is such a flex, by the way. Wise people are what? Wise. People who are wise already, like who have wisdom are already wise. It's, it's like the ultimate flex. God's like, yeah, yeah, the folks that are wise, I give wisdom to. 
I thought that was funny. <laughs> and knowledge and discerning, he reveals, I'm such a nerd, I'm sorry. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in the, in the darkness and the light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. So uh, you have made known to us the king of the dream. So what do we see right out of the gate? Daniel just had a vision that reminded him of who's really in charge. How might that, just stay with me here. I know we're just kind of doing old school Bible study this morning. How might that have any impact on your life? Being reminded of who's really in charge. Daniel just had a vision and was reminded of who gives wisdom, who reveals hidden things, where wisdom and power actually happen or come from, who's in charge, who happens to be on the throne and who put him there, who speaks to people in exile when they turn to him, who ultimately is the king of history. Apparently, old Nebi has his limits and he is about to pass them. So I want to pick up the pace a little bit in this story. The next section, Daniel interprets the dream. Then Daniel went to Antioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. Arioch seems to trust Daniel enough to attach himself and take credit. I love this. Arioch's on the chopping block, right? And then he brings Daniel into the, and he's like, hey, I found him. Me, I did it. I found him. <laughs> the king asked Daniel, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied. So Arioch is trying to take some sort of credit and put the, like, the, the, uh, the commendation on himself. Daniel goes, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he's asked about but there is a god in heaven who reveals mysteries he has shown king nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come my god has already shown you nebuchadnezzar just got reminded that he's not as big a big a deal as he thought he was and then we read your dreams and the visions that pass through your mind as you were lying in bed are these as your majesty was lying there your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mysteries, there's another reference to God. He's not, Daniel's not willing to plagiarize. He's like, I'm not that sharp. I'm not that good. I know you think that I am. I want to give all credit where credit is due. And he says, as for me, this mystery was revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation that you may understand what went through your mind. There's no compromise. He is being systematically pushed to pledge allegiance to Nebuchadnezzar, to forget his culture and his way of understanding the good life. Here Daniel is at death's door. He can't screw this moment up or he dies. No one would you blame Daniel for leaving the God part out of this? The whole, like, God of Judah that Nebuchadnezzar is trying to, like, whitewash. And instead, Daniel says twice, to be clear, this has nothing to do with me and everything to do with the God that you don't even believe exists that I'm trying to, like, get out of your head. Uh, Daniel has some cojones, uh, some... You with me? You following the narrative? 
All right, big long section here, verse 31 all the way to 44. This is this wild dream. I'm going to read it, and if you don't quite follow everything that's going on, that's fine. There's only about a million books that have been written about how to make sense of interpreting this section. Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue is pure gold. It's chest and arms of silver, it's belly and thighs of bronze, it's legs of iron, it's feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron and clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken into pieces. It became like chaff to a threshing floor in the summer. This is like a, like a Swedish heavy metal lyric. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he's placed all mankind, the beasts of the field, and the birds in the sky, wherever they live. He made you ruler. He's like, you're the guy, you're the ruler. After you, another kingdom will arise inferior to yours. Right? Because these metals go down in strength. Next, the third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron. For iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break others. Just as you saw, though, that the feet and toes were partly baked with clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Like, this kingdom will seem strong, but it will be super divided. The whole thing will fall apart. He gets into the toes in verse 42. As the toes are partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron and clay mix. Verse 44. In, that, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure. This is the meaning of the vision. Then he says in verse 45. The great God has shown the king. He showed you, Nebuchadnezzar, what will take place in the future? This dream is true and its interpretation trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel, paid him honor, and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in high position, lavished many gifts on him, made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon, and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators. He's like, I'm going to bring my crew with me over the province of Babylon where Daniel remained in the royal court. He's warning you. Yeah, you're the head. Yeah, God made you king of all. This kind of empire is not going to last. There's going to be more. They're going to get weaker and weaker and weaker. And the last one's going to appear strong, but it's actually going to be the weakest. And then this big old rock is going to come in. And it's going to, like, bash the whole stinking statue of Babylon that you've built. And this rock is the rock of, it's Jesus. It's the kingdom. It's what God is always up to and doing. Here's what I want to wrap us with. Friends. Ancient strange dreams and literatures like this can feel like they have just no relevance to us at all sometimes. But may I like humbly submit to you that there is a through line here that is like life-giving for us in this moment. 
from the calm, measured faith and his initial response to his praise break to the way that he sets up the dream explanation to his interpretation, Daniel knows who is on the throne and he knows how the story will end. He is living in the world, like First Peter says, and not of it. And he knows that the cultural moment he's living in, this moment of confusion and uncertainty and oppression, he knows that it will not last. And that's good news. It's a vision of hope. If you are fearful of liberalism, you shouldn't be because it's not on the throne. If you have some deep fear of conservatism, you shouldn't be fearful of it at all because it's not on the throne. If you fear your boss, know that he's not your or she is not your ultimate boss. You are called to do all things to the glory of God, not them. If you fear your president, if you fear your spouse, <laughs> you should go to counseling. But you should also remember, you should remember who is on the throne. Who we're to give ultimate allegiance to. There was this phrase in church world. I don't know, most of you aren't from like church culture. I wasn't either, but... As I became a pastor, I stumbled into a lot of this stuff. It's interesting, like, kind of nomenclature. And there was this phrase that was really, I thought was kind of helpful, and then a bunch of weird stuff got attached to it, and it got a little bit much, and then became like a branding technique, which happens all the time, right, the things. And there's this phrase, gospel-centered. Anyone remember this phrase? It was great. Like, we want to be centered on the gospel. If you're new to church, the gospel is the good news that Jesus is king. That he died on the cross, he rose again, that we are saved by grace through faith. It incorporates all these things. He's given us the spirits, the good news of the kingdom of God, that he's come to make all things new. But ultimately, if you were to boil it down, according to the scriptures, the gospel is the good news that Jesus is on the throne. 1 Corinthians 15. So this idea of being centered on the gospel, you know, it took this funny turn. It was like you could buy gospel-centered muffins. You know, it was like there's like gospel-centered books and da-da-da-da-da. So it kind of got watered down. I want to this morning, in case it needs to be reclaimed, and for most of you, you've just never even heard the phrase before, let's reclaim the phrase. To be centered. To be centered on the announcement, which is what the gospel is. It is simply an announcement of what is true. I want to center myself on a bit of news. And though Daniel predates the gospel as we know it, right? This is in the Old Testament before Jesus has come on the scene. This is what we're seeing in Daniel. He is centered on the word of God. He is centered on the God of ages, on the rock of ages, on Elohim, on Adonai, on the God who is good and true and on the throne. He is centered. His whole being is centered there. And if y'all who do like yoga or any kind of meditation, you know what it is to center yourself on a point, not on nothingness on the announcement of what is most true, at least we as followers of Jesus believe in the world. And so a few observations. Because Daniel has centered himself on God, he can, one, rise above the anxieties of the moment. Anyone would like that? Like, like that? Would you like that? 
I would love to rise above the anxiety of the moment. Two, he's able to have influence without compromise. Influence without compromise. He doesn't compromise an inch, and he actually gets elevated and blessed. Now, that's not going to happen every time. Some people take passages like that, like, if you're really faithful to God, like, you're getting that Lamborghini. No, no, but what is it? He was faithful to God in the moment and joined God in what he was doing there. And as I repeat, I feel like every week in this series, like, you don't have to worry about the consequences of doing the right thing. There was implicit freedom and joy in just doing that. Influence, though, comes to him without compromise. And then three... Daniel can sleep at night. Anyone like to sleep at night? He was struggling with that. Now, this isn't like in the text directly, but this is the natural outgrowth of a life like this. And as we go on and read the book of Daniel, we're going to see his rest. What I mean by sleep at night is his rest and peace and groundedness become more and more evident as the chaos as the ache, as the static, as the distortions increase. This is what happens when you see God as the source of everything. When you see God as the source of all wisdom and all goodness. When he comes against the cultural forces of his day. When Dave, Daniel comes face to face with the exile that he finds himself in. He simply stops. He finds his people, community. He prays and he listens. And he praises and he trusts. Because why? Because I know who holds the future, right? Because I know who redeems my past. Because all the plans, if I'm faithful, you have for me will be beautiful. He knows this to be true. That he'll never walk alone. That he will never be abandoned. That God is faithful and he always will be. You want to know what Daniel's name is? What it means? Anyone know what Daniel's name means? No? God is my judge. It's like a mic drop name for a book like this. God is my judge. Who is my judge? God is my judge. People use language like this sometimes in our day and age to sort of deflect from you can't critique me. I am my own judge. I am my own person. This has the reverse flex. It's like, no, no, no. Like, it's not like this is going to empower me to do whatever I want. It's that I know whose I am, and I know who I am. And it's not Nebuchadnezzar, and it's not that job, and it's not that boss, and it's not that cultural force, and it's not that thing pushing in on you, whatever it may be right now, however big and hard power, or however small and soft power it might be. He's got it. God is my judge. No one else. I pledge allegiance to God before I pledge allegiance to anything else. He seems to have a vision that transcends his environment. Holy Spirit, would you help our church have a vision of faithfulness that transcends the forces in our world that would lead us to death, that would lead us Lord, into things that are not of you. The kingdom is our home, and we know we can live in the kingdom now. For you announce, Lord, that the kingdom of God is here. And so, Lord, give us a vision that transcends the confusion and brokenness of this region. 
and I'll never walk alone. Never be abandoned. What a gift. What a gift. Holy Spirit. I pray for those that actually they're not like at the bottom of the well right now. But they have friends that are. Like they're not, they're, they're not feeling the, the, the friction. They, they, there's no Nebuchadnezzar around the corner. But they have friends that do. And I want to ask us in this moment as we open the altar up. To be praying for those folks. To maybe grab them by the hand and bring them to the altar to pray today. Holy Spirit, would you minister to us as we close our service? Holy Spirit, would you just fall? Give us some sort of faith in this moment. You will reward those who diligently seek you. I would like that reward, please, and thank you. Seek him in this moment. Just ask, Lord, where? Where am I tempted to compromise? Where am I just tempted to freeze or fight? Where have I compromised like my belief? Where am I so fearful? And you just want to remind me in this moment, Lord, that you're on the throne. That you are good. Just come forward. Come forward and receive prayer. Come forward. Just maybe just, if we need to just kneel at the altar for a moment and say, yeah, I'm done with that. Receive the blessing of that truth and that faithfulness. Just come forward. Holy Spirit, we believe, we believe, we believe, we believe that um, to live with the end in mind. Live knowing, Lord, that you truly hold the future, can liberate us in the present. I can't not think of like Dr. King in a moment. Like I always think of him, <laughs> always in this moment. When we think about like he just, his vision of like I've been to the mountaintop. He threw himself into harm's way as a father of Jesus again and again because he knew what the end of the story was even if he wasn't going to see it until the end. Lord, give us that. That is not like unique to a Dr. King. That is all of our birthright. That's your birthright. To live right now knowing it's all going to like work out. That he will wipe away every single tear. And that doesn't take away the pain and ache of the moment, the doubt and frustration of the moment. But you can walk right now in such freedom, trusting that he's got it. He's got it. He's got you. You're going to be okay. And so I pray, Spirit, come. Friends, I pray, just boldness. Like, if you've got to climb over people, I know it's awkward. Like, come front, come to the altar. Get your body in, involved in it if you need to. You just want to receive prayer, receive blessing. Maybe you just need to sit and sing at the front. And allow us, as we sing these words, I will never walk alone. I will never be abandoned. You are my deliverer. You are my strength and shield. You are my confidence. You go before me. I know I will never walk alone. Holy Spirit, we pray that just the blessing of like Daniel's life would just fall upon us in some way in this moment. Let's come. Let's sing. Let us worship together.